right, we are in the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 4 today. And Paul has spent the first half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3, uh, clearly defining the gospel, defining what the good news is, defining uh, what, what the reason is for our unity, what the reason is for our relationship with God. And he's going to turn in the last half uh, of the book, the last three chapters, to talk about how we live out that gospel. It's not just that we believe something, that is true. We are gospel people because we believe in the gospel, but we're also gospel people because we live out the gospel. And so he's going to spend the last half of the book um, doing this. Now, just living out these principles uh, doesn't make you a Christian. Just doing what Paul says in this last half doesn't make you anything. Uh, the only way that you can become a Christian is if you believe the first half of the book, that the gospel is real and that Jesus died to save us sinners, right? If you don't believe that, the last half of this is just moral instruction. But if you do, if you do believe the gospel and you really are saved, then the last half is not you trying to earn your way to God. It's not trying to prove that you belong to God. No, it is an expression of the God that is within us, okay? And that's really important to how we understand. He's going to talk about all sorts of issues. But his verse in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he's going to clearly put a banner and a, uh, a theme to the last half of this book. And he's going to say, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And then he's going to describe what that manner is. He's going to describe how we live that out in the last half of this book. But this is what it means to live as a Christian, to walk in a manner worthy. And we're going to talk about what that means. Today, he's going to address the issue of unity, unity. And I don't know where I would start if I was like, hey, here's my number one issue that I've got to address. I don't know. I don't, I'm, I, that's why I didn't write scripture, I guess, right? Um, but Paul starts with unity. He starts with unity in the body of Christ. Uh, so let's jump into Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the good news. God, that we don't have to be perfect. God, that we don't have to have it all together. God, we thank you for grace this morning. We thank you for mercy. God, and I pray that as we dwell on that and as it dwells in us, as you dwell in us, God, that it would change us in how we live. God, it would produce unity, not only in our church, but in every church and in the church. God, I pray that this morning your word uh, would not return void. And I pray that it would produce fruit in the lives of our hearts, God. And so we love you. We pray that 
you would help me to speak clearly as I ought, God, and that, that it would make sense, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, look at verse 1. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul, let's remember, Paul is in prison as he writes this. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. He's probably in Rome, most likely, and he is writing this letter. I don't know if you've gotten a letter from prison, but you take it a little more seriously, right? Because he has gone to prison for the sake of the message that he is proclaiming, right? He is willing to suffer for it. He's willing to even die for it. Why? Because he believes that it's true, and it's led him to prison. Uh, so we should really, I think he puts that in there to go, hey, listen to this. I'm about to say something really important. And he says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. His appeal to these Ephesian Christians and to us today is that we would live our lives in a worthy manner. Worthy of what? Worthy of the gospel. And Paul's going to use this phrase in four other letters, or in three, Colossians 1, verse 10, Philippians 1, verse 27, 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, and then John uses it in 3 John uh, chapter 1, verse 6. This walk in a manner worthy. What, is it, what does it mean? I had a really hard time without going to a dictionary of defining the word worthy this week. But worthy means uh, that, let's say I'm going to buy something from you. I give you something that is worth the same as you're giving me, right? That's what it means to be worthy. It matches in value, right? Um, it's, it's the idea that it's consistent with or comparable to. So if I try to trade you uh, this microphone for your house, this is not a worthy price, right? That's not it. But if I tried to give you $200,000, you would go, that's a worthy price, right? And so, so worthy, the idea that we should live our lives in a worthy way means that our lives should match the calling that we've been called to, the price that was paid for us. It should be consistent with and comparable to. It's used in other places to say that a worker is worthy of his wages. If somebody comes and builds you a house, you should pay them for that work. They are worth that work, right? And he, he's saying that our lives are to be lived in such a way that they match with their, not that we're equal to, but that it's comparable to and consistent with the price that was paid for our lives. And what was the price that was paid for our lives? Jesus dying on the cross, rising from the grave, rescuing us from sin and death. That's, that frames the rest of our life as Christians, that we're trying to live in a manner worthy of the sacrifice that he made. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So what is it that we've been called to? It's not, uh, this is not, he's not just talking about like your vocation, that I've been called to be a preacher, or I've been called to be a teacher. This is something way bigger than that. Let's look in chapter 1, if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Here's what he says. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's one thing we've been called to, is to be holy and blameless. It says in love, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption. That's something we've been called to, is adoption. 
We've been predestined for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And so what have we been called to? First, we've been called to be holy and blameless. That through Jesus and what he has done to make us holy, we didn't do that on our own. We, we aren't blameless. No, we come before God needing forgiveness for our sins. But we are meant to live that out. We're meant to live blameless and holy lives because it matches, it's comparable to, it's worthy of the calling that we've been called to. We're not meant to go back, claim Christ, and then go back to our old ways of sin. We're not meant to go back to old patterns and old habits. No, we have a new life, like Gunnar said this morning. It's like, I can't wait for my new body. I love the way he says it, right? And what he's talking about is, I'm new. God has made me new in Christ. We're not meant to go back. The other thing we've been called to, he says, is adoption. We've been adopted into the family of God. We are not, uh, we do not belong by nature. But now that we have been adopted in Christ, we are to live so that we honor our new father, right? We're not bringing shame to the name of the one who has adopted us into his family. We live under the new house rules of the family we belong to now, not the old ways, right? We've been given a new identity, and we're to live that out. You are now a Christian, one of Christ's. That's what he's saying. What else have we been called to? Chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? So what have we been called to? He says, we've been called to hope. And what he's talking about is our salvation. He's talking about the hope that we have that one day we will, in, we will be co-heirs with Christ. And we have this hope that, that we shouldn't have. He's talking about our salvation. And so what Paul is saying is we should live our lives. That's what it means to live in a manner worthy. We should live our lives in such a way that it matches the price that Jesus paid to purchase us. That it matches the sacrifice that he made on the cross. That it's consistent with, not in opposition to, what Jesus has done. This, this is the theme that's going to play out over the rest of the book of Ephesians. So it's really important that we understand it. That we should walk in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy. So what's he going to talk about specifically today? He's going to talk about unity. Unity. Togetherness. Being bonded. Look at verse 2. Verse 2, and actually Paul's going to start with qualities that we're going to need, fruits of the Spirit that we're going to need in order to have unity. And here's what he says in verse 2. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And then he's going to go on to say, eager to maintain the unity. But he's saying we've got to have these, humility, gentleness, patience, Bearing with one another in love. Humility, uh, the Greeks despised this word. They hated it. This was not any, uh, this was, we kind of view it in a positive light. Oh, he's a humble leader, right? Or he's, he, she's very humble for what she does, right? The Greeks didn't do that. This is an this is a insult to say that someone is ho, uh, hu, humble. What's the word? Humble. Yeah, there it is. All right? It was to mean that they were low, that they, they, they were scum right but Jesus when he comes he humbles himself to the point of death even death on a cross right 
Humility means that we're not self-exalting, that we're not like putting ourselves above others, but it also doesn't mean that we're self-deprecating, that we, we just go, oh, poor me, right? C.S. Lewis says this, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself like, oh, I'm just a terrible, terrible person. That's not humility, that's false. It's thinking of yourself less. And so humility is this infatuation with thinking about God and thinking about other people, not myself, not how I'm perceived, not, not my position, not my whatever. It's thinking about others. The opposite of humility is pride and self-exaltation, thinking higher of ourselves than we ought to. Do you see how this will hurt our unity? If we're not humble, if we're not putting others before ourselves, but we always have to be on top, or we always have to be right, or we always have to be the most important person in the room, right, that's going to dissuade from our unity. The only way we're going to be able to be united together as a church is if we have humility. He says, with all humility and gentleness. Gentleness. Now, gentleness is... Is a fruit of the Spirit, if you know from Galatians. Is it Galatians? I don't know. My brain's not working this morning. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit, meaning that it's something that when the Spirit lives inside of us, it produces gentleness. But in our day, uh, this is totally neglected. Some people have this perception that the more abrasive you can be, the more godly you are. Like the more you can stir up people to, to hate and controversy by standing up for the truth, the more godly you are, right? They're not gentle, they're abrasive. But abrasive is not a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is. We are to stand for truth, but we're not to do it in a, in a jerk way. No, we are to be gentle. Gentle means being careful with. It means being respectful of others, being sensitive to others, being kind in how we speak to and treat one another. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 3. He says, but in your hearts, 1 Peter 3, 15, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. We are, we are to speak the truth. We are to proclaim the truth, but we're not to do it in a disrespectful way. We're not to do it in a careless way. We're to be gentle. Gentleness is strength under control. It's not just using my strength because I can throw my daughter across the room. That's not being gentle with her. Yeah, I can. Gentle is loving her and being kind and tender, right? And that's, can you see how if we're not gentle with one another, it's going to be hard for us to be united, right? We may be speaking the truth, but we may not be speaking it in a gentle or respectful way. The only way we can be united is if we have gentleness. He says, with patience. With patience. This too is a fruit of the Spirit. And if you have an older English translation, uh, yours may say long-suffering. Anybody say long-suffering in the room? Anybody's translation? No? Okay. Long suffering. It means that we endure for a long time. We're patient. We suffer long. We don't just give up easily. It means that we don't just erupt in anger when something doesn't go our way. It doesn't mean that we just go, ah, they messed up. I'm done with them. I'm cutting them out of my life. No, no we're to be patient. 
We're not short-tempered. We're meant to be long-tempered, I guess. It's not an English word, but we're, we're to have a long temper. That, that before, we have a long fuse, I guess, is how we say it, right? Patience means that we don't just leave when things get a little bit difficult. Patience means that we don't expect that we're going to see all the results and all the fruit right away. No, patience takes the long aim, plays the long game, and says that, that we're not going to lose hope. We're going to suffer long. Can you see how if we don't have patience, it won't, it won't lead to unity? We'll bail as soon as something doesn't go our way. We'll bail as soon as the preacher says something I don't agree with. We'll, we'll, we'll oh, no, they're toxic. I'm leaving, all that sort of stuff. No, we're called to be what? Patient. And why? And this is really the point of this whole sermon. It's because God is patient. God is patient with us. He doesn't have a short fuse with us. He doesn't just go, oh, you messed up, you're done, cutting you out, <laughs> sending you to hell. No, it says he is slow to anger. He is patient with us when we don't deserve it. God is patience, that we're given time to repent and to return to him. That's why we're called to be patient, is because God is patient. That's why we're called to be gentle, is because God is gentle. That's why we're called to be all these things. But the only way we're going to be able to be united is if we are patient. He says, with all gentleness, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's not really the most like positive <laughs> description of the church to say that we, you know, we got a good church. We bear with one another. Like, if you described your marriage like that, well, how would that sound? I got a good wife, but we just kind of bear with one another. Doesn't really sound real positive, but I think his point is good because it's not just that we put up with one another. He says we bear with one another in love, right? We, because we love one another, we do bear with one another. If we don't love one another, we won't bear with one another, right? So he says that we are to bear with. That means to suffer through, to endure, to, to go all the way. We don't give up on each other. But because we love each other, we bear with one another. And this is, we all want community and we all want friendship and we all want people that we like and want to be around. But, but having a church community takes work. It's not always easy, right? We don't always get along. We don't always have the same opinions. We don't always have the same good personalities that click and mesh, right? If you do... You may be a church of like six people, and I don't, maybe you're, I don't know, they're probably not your family, but, uh, right? Having community, having family, having this kind of relationship takes work. And I appreciate that scripture says that, because we're not all the same. We don't all think the same. But we are called to bear with one another because we love one another. Every one of these virtues, humility, gentleness, patience, love, they were displayed in Christ's own character. And because we are now in Christ, because we are now part of Christ's family, Christ's body, we are to display these. These are to be evident in our lives. That's, what the, that's why they're called the fruit of the Spirit. The only way we can be united is if we are humble, gentle, patient, and we bear with one another in love. Look at verse 3. 
This is really his point for today is verse 3. He says that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We should be eager to maintain the unity. Uh, eager is, is a word that means uh, diligent or um, it really means to fully apply yourself. It's, it's the idea of energy and passion and drive and action right? It's not, just, uh, it's, it's not just kind of passive, like, well, if we, if we stay united, great. No, he says we should be eager to do it. It's passion, it's zeal, it's action. It's not just passive sitting back and, and hoping this happens. And, and what are we passionate and eager about? He says maintaining unity. Unity is oneness. It doesn't mean sameness. It doesn't mean that we're all the same. We all think the same. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. It means that we're bonded together. We're, we're all pulling in the same direction. If me and my wife are united in our marriage, it means that we, that doesn't mean we always get along. <laughs> Let me set that straight, right? But it does mean that we love one another and we're pulling in the same direction and we forgive one another and we keep working it out and we keep going, Right? That's this idea of eager, of maintaining the unity. Uh, many of us have, let's think about examples of unity. Uh, many of us have worked in workplaces. Just picture that in your mind, your workplace, where you work, the people you work with, the bosses, all that sort of stuff. We've all worked in places that are not healthy, and we've worked in places that are healthy. We've worked in places that are not united, and we've worked in places that are united. And you, every, I see a lot of head nods, right? Everybody's going, mm-hmm, been there, been in that one. Where there is unity, coworkers thrive. Not because they all agree, but because they work it out, and they're all pulling in the same direction. And typically, these companies overachieve. They do better than they ought to. Why? Because they're united, right? We've seen it, uh, you see the opposite, Right? Where, where you may have really talented people and really gifted people, but if there's not unity about what we're doing and where we're going, they underachieve. They don't really meet their potential, right? We've seen it in sports teams. Man, bad time to be an Aggie fan right now, right? I'll own it. It's all right. When teams are united, you can tell. And when teams are divided, you can tell, Right? I see the sports guys shaking their head, right? And teams that are united, everybody's about the common good of winning or going to the championship or whatever the goal is that year. And these teams typically overachieve. They do better than they really should. Why? Because everybody's pulling in the same direction. Because everybody's after the same goal. But we've also seen the opposite, where teams have a lot of five-star recruits. <laughs> They've got all the best players that money can buy. And because they're not united on the same page, what happens? They lose to South Carolina, or they lose to whoever, Appalachian State, whoever that is, right? And I'm sorry, Aggies. But when teams are united, they, they overachieve. And here's the point for us, right? If we're not united, we will drastically underachieve the mission that we've been given. We will. But if we're united... We're all pulling in the same direction. We work through our differences. We will vastly overachieve what God has given us to do. He says this unity is of the Spirit. 
This doesn't mean that we all think the same. I've said that a lot. It means that the unity that we share, the reason that we are united together is because of the Spirit. The the only common quality we have in the room today, besides that we're in this building, is that we are of the Spirit or in the Spirit, that we have been saved, that we believe the gospel. God is the one who creates our unity, not us. He's the one who adopted all of us into this family. But we have a role in this because he says we should be eager to what? To maintain it. God creates it, but we have a role in keeping it, in helping it flourish and increasing that unity. And he says that it's the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The thing that bonds us together, that unites us together, is our common peace. It's our common peace. That we have peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. He took the punishment and the penalty that we deserved, and he created peace between us and God. That's what bonds us together. And that's what our mission is together, is to proclaim that peace. So why unity? Why does this matter? Why, why, what is Paul's reasoning for this? Well, he, he gives it in verse 4, 5, and 6. That this is what we should do. We should seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the reasons are in verse 4, 5, and 6. Let's read it. He says, There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's a word that's repeated seven times, and what is it? One. One. All maybe seven times, too. I didn't read that. No, it's one. There is one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, all these things. So what is Paul's reason for why we should be united or we should be one? Because God is one. Because, because he is united, and we are his people, and we are, he, he has filled us, and we are to live out his He's given us this new DNA, and this is what he he says. There is one body. There's not a Jewish body and a Gentile body. There's not a white body and a black body. No, there is one body of Christ. There is one church, not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. No, there is one body, those who are redeemed, those who have peace with God. He says there's one spirit. Uh, If you read the book of Acts, if you've been in D group, you get to this point where it, uh, the Jews are shocked that the Gentiles are getting the same spirit that they got. They're going, oh, wow, God filled them just like he filled us. This must mean that God wants everyone to be saved, right? And they're blown away by this truth. We take that for granted, but there is one spirit, the same spirit that dwells in us, dwells in all Christians. He says, called to one hope. We only have one hope. It's not that, that one day, it's not political hope, it's not economic hope. No, it's, it's, it's our relationship with God. It's our one hope that, that through Jesus, we can have access to God. There's not different ways to get to him. There's not different paths to get up to the top of the mountain where God is. No, there is one hope. There is one way. He says there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus Christ is the Lord. There is no other. There's one faith. 
That our faith is in Jesus alone. The only way we can be saved is to place our faith in him. There's no other way to work your way to the top of the mountain where God is. There's no cleanup you can do in your life to make you pleasing to the Father, to create peace between you and him. There is one faith. He says there is one baptism. When we believe we're filled with the Spirit at the moment of our salvation, this is not some secondary experience or something you've got to pray for. No, no, we are baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. And we express it publicly like Gunnar did this morning. And we, we show this picture of that the old person is dead, the new person is raised, that we're identifying with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. But he says there is one baptism. There is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There is one God and yes, he has revealed himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There is one God. They're not divided. They don't have separate agendas. They don't have different missions and different purposes. No, there is one God. There's only one way to him. There's only one family of God, the church. And God is the Father of all. He's over all, he's through all, and he's in all. He's omnipresent. He's at all places at all times. This is so beyond our comprehension. But this is the God who has created this family. And he says, this is how our family is going to live. We're going to be united. Why? Because I'm united. Because I am one. We are to be united as an expression of our unity with God. Now, that's great. And that's clear, hopefully. But what does that look like? What does that look like in a church? Uh, there's an old German philo Christian uh, theologian in, 19, in the 1600s that said this phrase, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, in the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So he says, in the essentials, we need to have unity. In things that are not essential, liberty, freedom. There's there's freedom, there's room for disagreement and different opinions. But he says, in all things, charity, which is an old word, not charity over here, it means love. That in all things, whether we agree or don't agree, whether it's essential or not essential, in all things, no matter what, love. And so this is helpful for us because we have to be united over the most essential things. And what is that? That there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one way to salvation. There's not many, and there's one truth revealed in Scripture, not my truth and your truth. There is one. We have to agree and be united on the essentials. Now, when it comes to matters that are not directly connected to our salvation, we gotta allow for liberty. There's lots of opinions in here. If you polled the audience today on end times, we're probably not coming to an agreement, right? There's lots of opinions on politics. We're probably not coming to an agreement. That's okay. We don't have to hate each other because of that. We don't have to divide because of that. That's what the enemy wants. No, God wants us to be united over what is essential. And on everything else, you know what? I'm going to love you, but I'm going to allow for disagreement. That's okay. The social media in our age is like, if you disagree, you must hate them. You must really despise them. That's not true. It's not true. We should be united over the most essential things and in all things that we are to love one another. 
I try to think of some ways that we can express our unity and that we can maintain this unity. I think because unity is action. It's being eager to do something. It might mean unity might look like this. Introducing yourself to people at church. <laughs> we tend to sit in the same spots. I don't know if you know this. There's not plaques yet. Um, but there are, I don't know if y'all know this, but there's people that sit on that side of the room. I don't know if y'all know this, but there's people over here that you've never met. Part of unity is going, you know what? I don't know you. Hey, I'm so-and-so. Unity means getting to know people you don't know, introducing yourself. Unity might look like resolving conflict. Not allowing it, pushing it under the rug, not dealing with it, acting like it never happened, sitting in a different spot in the sanctuary. Unity is what? Is a commitment to go and resolve it, to work it out, to talk it out, to try to figure it out. Unity means showing up, being involved in what's going on here, coming to church, coming to prayer, coming to fellowships, being with the body. It's hard to be united if we're not together. It means not arguing over non-essentials. It might look like that, just choosing to not argue over those things. It is okay to have an opinion but it is not okay in the church to allow your opinion to divide you from your brother. It means taking initiative. It means using your gifts to serve the body. It means so many things. But Christians, we are called to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let me pray. God, thank you for this morning. And I thank you for the truth of your word. God, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us where we've messed up. God, forgive us where we've allowed sin to fester and divide us. God, forgive us where we've not been eager to maintain this unity that you've created. God, I pray that you would fill us up with gospel courage to go forward, to introduce ourselves, to forgive, to work things out. God, I pray that through the unity that is created in this place, God, that the world would come to know you. That's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, that we would be one as he and the Father are one, and that the world would come to know you through that. And so I pray that as we live out the gospel, that we would proclaim the gospel with our lips, God, and you would save many. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.